The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, my family got back from the beach yesterday after spending a week in Garden City, which is a Hoffman family tradition. We do this every year. And a guilty pleasure that I have developed over the last probably 10, 12, 13, 14 years is I love to read pirate books at the beach. I just, I just find pirates incredibly fascinating. I don't know what it is about their, their I don't know, their, their bravado and, you know, the swordsmanship and the stealing of boats and the Jack Sparrow and, you know, all I have read so much about pirates, and I find it just completely fascinating. And one of the things that I love about reading these pirate stories and kind of this Human tendency is the way that pirates will commandeer a ship, and what do they always do when they commandeer a ship? They rename the ship. And they always rename it some kind of awesome name. Like Blackbeard's ship was famously called Queen Anne's Revenge. I don't know what it means, but it's awesome. And that's kind of how I feel about pirates. I don't understand them. It's a, it's a, they're a part of a bygone world that I don't understand and probably don't actually want to participate in, but I find something really compelling about pirate stories. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. And I find this tendency of theirs to name ships fascinating. And just find kind of the, the idea or the, the human impulse to want to give names to things to be an incredibly interesting reality. We name our kids, obviously. We name our dogs, obviously. Some of us even go so far as naming things like our vehicles. Does anybody in the room have a name for their car? I drive an F-150. His name is Jeff. Jeff-150 is the name of my truck, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think it's funny. I'm glad you guys do too. Now, if you, if you read through the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is that names are all over the Bible. Not just names of characters, but, a, but there's a, a kind of meaningfulness to the names that appear in Scripture. In the ancient world, names were believed to reveal the essence of a thing. That's why you'll see somebody is given a name after a, a sort of important event. Is that the, the name is intended to reveal something of the essence of that character. In addition to uh, the name communicating something of the essence of a thing, names implied a certain degree of, of proximity. There was a, a certain degree of relationship. When someone revealed their name, they were opening up access to themselves. That's why in the book of Exodus, it's really monumental when the Lord gives Moses his name. When the Lord tells Moses that my name is I am. God graciously makes his essence and his, him, himself known to the character of Moses by telling him his name. And that's why the Lord commands the nation of Israel to hold that name in esteem. One of the Ten Commandments is to not take the Lord's name in vain. God doesn't want his name used with flippancy and with lightness, right? Now, if you read through the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll see again and again and again is the reoccurrence of names, of the Greek word for name. Of course, there's lots of new characters, and so we're told, you know, they went to this town and they met this guy who happened to be named this. But more than that, the amount of times that the name of Jesus, that phrase, the name of Jesus, something being done or performed or said in the name of Jesus, the amount of time that little phrase appears in the book of Acts is remarkable. It's amazing how frequently that takes place. We think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says to go make disciples and do what? Baptize them in my name. And we see the disciples doing exactly that all over Acts. In Acts chapter 19, they baptize in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter declares that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The apostles healed a, a, a paralyzed man. 
paralytic in Acts chapter 3 in the name of Jesus. The apostles in that instance are asked by what name or by what power they do these miracles. And then they're commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, they declare, Acts chapter 4, 12, it is by no other name under heaven by which we are saved, but the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is declaring the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is told in Acts chapter 9 how much he must suffer for Jesus' name. And in Acts chapter 10, forgiveness of sins comes through, guess what? The name of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 16, demons are cast out in Jesus' name. And that's like a third of the examples in the book of Acts of Jesus' name, the name of Jesus, having some kind of potency. In the book of Acts, it's like the name of Jesus is alive and on the move and active and powerfully behind every encounter. It's almost like his name is a picture of his power and presence. Jesus, though ascended to the heavenly places, is very much alive and active in a present tense sense in the book of Acts. He is very near and very at work. And so to know the name of Jesus is to acknowledge something of his power and his potency and his authority over all things and all peoples and all nations. And to operate in the name of Jesus is to do so with a kind of joyful submission to the authority of Jesus in everything. In our passage today, we see folks who want to pluck Jesus' name out and use it for their own ends. And it's, can I say it this way? It is delicious, the, the way it works out for them. We learned that it doesn't work out super well. In fact, we're going to see a contrast between the way Jesus' name is, is regarded versus the way that Jesus' name is used in this passage. Now, just by way of reminder, Paul and his team are on their third missionary journey. They've had their first journey, the second journey, and now they're on their third journey. On their second journey, they traveled all the way to Europe, and we see the gospel take root in Europe in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. Then Paul goes back at the end of that journey to the church at Antioch to report all of the things that the Lord has done. Now he's on his third missionary journey, and he lands in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is probably the biggest city in the ancient world. I mean, it is absolutely gigantic by ancient standards. And something that's really interesting about the city of Ephesus is how kind of centered on magic it was. There was this temple to the goddess Artemis that was really pronounced in the city center. And there's these mysterious terms that are engraved on the statue, thought to be these kind of powerful spells. And folks would try and invoke these spells. It's called the Ephesian scripts. Paul goes to town and they go, kind of arrive in town, and Paul is portrayed as kind of going toe-to-toe with magic, with black magic powers in the city. A few weeks back, we said that Athens was sort of like the Boston of its day, and that Corinth was kind of like the New York City of its day. Well, uh, Ephesus would be like Asheville, just fully grown, just compl- on steroids, just completely fully grown, if you know anything about Asheville. Verse... Verse 11, Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I just looked up and see some of your eyebrows raise at this passage. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing, right? It's, it's kind of wild, and honestly, it's kind of puzzling. I mean, what, what we see here is that the power of God is resting so densely on Paul that even the fabric that grazes his skin has healing properties. That's pretty wild. It recalls, to me, as I read this, it recalls the story of the woman with the issue of blood in the Gospels. If you're familiar with the story, 
There's this one really beautiful story of a woman with a bleeding issue who's unclean and she pushes through a crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. And here's the wild thing. It works. She touches the hem of Jesus's garment, healed. Similarly, there's kind of a, a wild power of God that is resting on Paul at this point in the story so that his handkerchief, his, the aprons, his napkin, he finishes his dinner, he throws away his napkin, and sick, and they're healed. There's two things to notice here in this passage that I think are, are really remarkable. First, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, he uses this adjective in verse 11. He says, Paul is doing what kind of miracles? Extraordinary miracles. All right, so we read this and we think, this is a little wild. Well, Luke actually kind of agrees with us. This is extraordinary. Is this to be normative? Is this to be expected of Christians that we, the, the, the aprons that we use have healing properties? I don't think Luke thinks so. God was doing extraordinary miracles here through Paul. And we've seen some wild stuff in the book of Acts up to this point. Visions and healings and prison breaks and more visions. And Luke's like, yeah, even this is a little bit wild. Extraordinary miracles are being done through the hands of Paul. But secondly, notice who is the one who is given credit for the miracle. It says, God, by the hands of Paul, is doing extraordinary miracles. Luke wants to, to, to make sure we understand that we are to distinguish the miracle from the person. This is God at work. This is not Paul at work. This is nothing in Paul. This is God at work through Paul. In fact, this is kind of held out to us, I think, as a way to contrast Paul with the sons of Sceva. We're going to see in a second. Because we, we, we want to notice who is really the one with the power that is driving things here. In fact, as we read through this passage, it's amazing how much Luke wants to demonstrate the power of the word and the power of God and the power of spirit working through his people. Here in verse 11, it says that God is doing these miracles through Paul. And then Jesus' name here in a couple of verses is acknowledged by evil spirits. His name is extolled. And then in verse 20, it says that the word of the Lord increases and prevails mightily. God is the one who is at work, and Paul happens to be almost like an innocent bystander who is roped in and recruited in to be a part of what God is doing. This is not magic. Paul is not portrayed as some kind of mystical holy man. This is important. God is the one who is at work, and he is graciously doing so through Paul in a way that even Luke acknowledges is not ordinary, is not typical. And that's important because verse 13, a couple of scumbags think they can make a profit off of this. Verse 13, look. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. All right, so apparently in this time, there's emerged these traveling exorcists who presumably do this for a living. They go from town to town, casting out demons in, in the name of the Jewish God, probably to make a buck. This is not a feature of Jewish practice or theology. This is probably some kind of syncretistic mixture of Jewish faith and paganism. These traveling huckster exorcists casting out demons for a buck or two. They see Paul apparently being really effective at this. And they think, ah, if we could, if we could use the name that Paul uses, how much more effective would this make our industry, our, our entrepreneurial pursuits, we might say. If we can invoke that name, if I, can, if I can use this incantation that Paul seems to be using, maybe this will work out for us. Now, it's interesting that this is not the first time we've seen 
magicians, especially magicians who are motivated by money, appear in the book of Acts. In chapter 8, we're introduced to Simon the magician, who's also impressed by the apostles' tricks and and, and wants to have a piece of that. He he wants to know how he can get the the power to do the tricks that they do. There's Elamos in chapter 13, who's a a magician, kind of a worm-tongue figure, who's an advisor. In chapter 16, we see that there's a Philippian slave girl who's enslaved by evil spirits who tells the fortune on behalf of her owners so that they can rake in the cash. And now we have the sons of Schema. The spiritual world is apparently a really lucrative industry. And if you stay up past like 11 p.m., you you know that it remains a lucrative industry when you see the infomercials that still take place. What's up? Hey, you know, let me just say this real quick. We're, we're getting settling, settling in our space, and we've had issues with the toilets and issues with the sound system. And sound people are like offensive linemen. You only notice them when the running back is tackled in the backfield or they give up a sack. They're completely unappreciated otherwise. Right? So the only reason we even notice the sound right now is because it's something's going wrong. 99% of the time, everything's going great, and they're doing extraordinary work. And so let's not you know, overlook that fact on behalf of the sound guys. So thank you, Jonathan and Nick and the other guys who, who do such hard work. Now, unlike Jonathan, we have people like Kenneth Copeland who, in Word of Faith TV preachers who are continuing the tradition of Sons of Sceva, invoking the name of Jesus, praying on the vulnerable, offering to send you sweaty cloths for five easy payments, I mean donations of 99.99 and stuff like that. I mean, there's a long history of this kind of stuff taking place. And it's kind of what makes this story so, if I can use this word, delicious, right? Because these exploiters get their just desserts. The Sons of Sceva approach a man with an evil spirit, verse 15, But the evil spirit answered them. This is awesome. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They think that they can invoke the name of Jesus. The Jesus that Paul uses, we're going to use that name too to cast out this spirit. And how does the spirit respond? The evil spirit says, Jesus, that's a name that I know. It actually reminds me of James chapter 2, where James tells us that demons believe, and it gives them the heebie-jeebies. Jesus, we know that name. We are familiar with Jesus. Paul, we've heard of. I respect Paul. We know how Jesus is using Paul. But you, who are you? And it's just savage. It's so good. And then verse 17, three verbs. The man leapt on them, mastered them, and overpowered them. The spirit working through the man leaps on them, masters, and overpowers them. And then they flee the house naked and wounded, completely and utterly humiliated. The sons of Sceva take a massive L, and the word spreads, and it is not a good look. I mean, think about this. Imagine, I mean, you do this for a living. You conjure up spells to cast out demons. And I guess these guys... We're on deed.com the following week, submitting resumes, trying to find work. Verse 17, watch what happens. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's not that Jesus' spell doesn't work. It's that they recognize that Jesus' name can't be spelled, if I can say it that way. So they hear and they fear and notice Jesus' name, though previously used and invoked, now what does it say? His name was extolled. 
The word extol means something like to give glory to or to magnify, to make much of something, to adore and revere and treasure something for its own sake. The name of Jesus previously used is now extolled. What's the difference between something being used and something being extolled? If you use something, that means that thing is a means to an end. I'm I'm like looking through that thing to something else, right? So I use Greek yogurt. Greek yogurt is gross, but its calorie to protein content is good. And so I use Greek yogurt because I'm trying to be fit and all that stuff for whatever reason, because I'm old. I use certain types of music. Let's be honest here. Nobody likes the Beatles, but it makes you feel sophisticated or something. And so you use the Beatles to look cultured, to pretend to like it. <laughs> we see through you, Ben. We know what you really do. Or when I'm feeling really brave, I admit that I use people. This is so gross. I don't like them, but they're useful. They get me closer to people in power. And you know how awful it is. You have been used. You know that to use, rather than to extol someone for their own sake, it just makes your skin crawl, doesn't it? A friend got you access to the cute girl or cute boy or power broker in your company or an important person in your social circle, so you use them. To use a thing is fundamentally at odds with love. But to extol something, that's completely different, right? Instead of treating something as a means to an end, to extol a thing, my gaze is fixed on that thing for that thing's sake, right? I extol my mom's homemade ice cream. I enjoy it for its own sake. Dylan, right, (laughs) we do. I extol vintage John Mayer because it's great and I enjoy it, no shame. I extol Aaron because I genuinely enjoy his friendship. To use a thing is to treat a thing as a means to an end, but to extol a thing is to take joy in that thing for that thing's sake. Notice the contrast in Jesus' name again in this passage, verse 13 that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The trick seems powerful, so we can invoke that name and see what happens for us. We can use the name of Jesus, and how does it go for them? Not well. And the result of all of this in verse 17 is that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. A result of this catastrophe in the sons of Sceva is that folks who are in similar career fields also dabbling in magic, they see the power of Jesus and they respond with fear and by adoring his name. They become Christians. And it's so interesting to me because you think that the opposite effect would be the case. The name didn't work at least by what the sons of Sceva were trying to do with it. It didn't work. And you'd think it would have the opposite effect, that people would would bypass the name. But Jesus' power is shown in how unable it is to just be mastered and to be used. That is the power of Jesus' name on display here. The lesser gods and the false, cheap magic that they use, all of that stuff must apparently work by demons or by sleight of hand or whatever it is. But this encounter, what it shows us is that the name of Jesus cannot be mastered and it sends shivers down the spine of demons and the onlookers and the result is that the name of Christ is adored. Verse 18. 
Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Like, it's like we, playing hot potato now. We don't want anything to do with these evil practices any longer. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, can, they counted the value of them and found it to, to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 17, fear falls upon them. The name of Jesus is extolled. They realize that this is a power that cannot be toyed with. You cannot dabble or use the name of Jesus. This week, I listened to a podcast about the development of the atomic bomb, and it was just incredibly fascinating. And the story of the development of the atomic bomb is this kind of increasing realization that we are, humans are dabbling with powers that we do not need to dabble with. And in this story, to dabble and play with the name of Jesus is infinitely more treacherous than even nuclear power. They realize this and they fear. Verse 18, they come to faith in Jesus, they confess their sin, they, they divulge their practices. No thanks, I don't want any of this practice any longer. And in verse 19, they burned their magic books and Luke tells us that it's worth 50 pieces of silver. One piece of silver was a day's wage. And so this is worth something like 137 years worth of work for the average laborer. Again, magic is a lucrative industry, and the spells that worked were worth some coin, but they willingly relinquished their practice, not forced, but a willing displacement, letting go of these things in favor of following Jesus. And the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. The nuclear power of the name of Jesus is not to be taken in vain or dabbled with or treated with lightness. On the one hand, it's really tempting to read this passage and, and want what Paul has. But on the other hand, that's kind of the problem, right? That's kind of the presenting problem in the story. That's exactly what gets the sons of Sceva in trouble. It's kind of the presenting issue. How does Paul get that power? It's kind of a tricky question. It's like we see how the Lord uses Paul, and we want to be used like Paul too, and that's a good desire. But we also know that our hearts are tricky, and we see the danger of reducing Jesus' name to a power play or a way to, to ultimately backdoor extol our own name. In some ways, it's kind of like humility. We should want humility, and we should pursue humility. You should run hard after it, but when you finally get it and notice that you have it, it's kind of like, poof, it disappears, right? So there's a holy way of desiring this kind of dense presence this, this God working through Paul, there's a holy way of desiring that, but it's also kind of a precarious thing to pursue. So instead of asking, you know, how, how, do I, how do I get the presence of God on me like Paul has, maybe a better question for ask is this. Is the name of Jesus useful to me? Or is the name of Jesus the object of my adoration? Is Jesus useful to me? Or is he the object of my adoration? Maybe you're here this morning, and Jesus' name is socially useful. It is, in the circles you find yourself in, it is advantageous for you to be Christian. It boosts your image to use the name of Jesus. In your Instagram profile to put believer, or in conversation with important people to talk about all the things the Lord is teaching you. It boosts your image, and Jesus is socially useful. Maybe Jesus is useful in business, or, or maybe Jesus is useful Going to church is useful because it gets my wife or my parents out of my hair. Maybe Jesus is useful because she's into Jesus and she's cute. Maybe Jesus is useful because you believe he's got stuff to give you. 
One really strong lesson here is that the name of Jesus is no magical incantation or talisman to get the stuff you want. You think about all the, the, the fairy tale stories of people who dabble with black magic to get someone to love them or to, to have gold or something like that, to have their covetous, those desires given to them. And the problem with magic isn't the spells per se, it's the desire to bend the world around your wishes. And it's especially evil when Jesus' name is used magically, thinking his name can be mastered or employed to get the stuff that you want. Maybe you've heard of the prosperity gospel and word of faith stuff. It teaches that you can invoke the name of Jesus, name and claim and manifest things. I'm, I'm highly favored, I'm blessed, I will be prosperous in whatever I do. I claim success in my business, I claim good health, no harm can come to me in Jesus' name. And that feels dangerously like what the sons of Sceva attempted to do. The problem is that using Jesus' name for your ends, that is literally black magic. TikTok self-help hucksters who are just in keeping with the traditions of the sons of Sceva, it would be funny if it wasn't so evil. It is exploiting rather than extolling the name of Jesus, and it is a dreadful mistake to make. Is Jesus useful to me, or is Jesus the object of my adoration? And I wanna be careful here by asking this, because I don't want to create undue anxiety. But something that we really need to think about and really need to ask ourselves is even this. Is Jesus just useful for forgiveness? Is, is Jesus just the, the means to get me to the end that is eternal life? Or do I love Jesus for Jesus' own sake? Here's some amazing news. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus loves you too much, and, and he, he came to give you more than just friends. Jesus came to give you more than good health. Jesus came to give you more than insert self-help therapy talk here. Jesus came to give you more than forgiveness. Jesus came to give you himself, and the invitation is to Christ. I read this quote a few weeks back, and I love it. It comes from Sam Alberry. He says this, Christianity, come for the forgiveness, stay for the forgiver. The promise of forgiveness gets us in, but once we're in, we see the forgiver with a capital F behind the forgiveness and realize this is better than I even thought it was because Jesus came to offer himself. Again and again, the prophets, Jesus echoes this in the gospels, that God doesn't want sacrifice, he doesn't want obedience necessarily. Obedience is downstream from what Jesus wants from you. He wants your heart and your love and your allegiance. Sacrifice and external performance, all of that stuff is too easy. Jesus wants your brain space and your decision making and your emotions. He wants your love and your attention and your eye contact. So the question bearing down on each of us is, is Jesus supreme and do I extol him as supreme from my protons and neutrons outwards? Or is Jesus useful? The story makes me think of Jesus' words to conclude the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll have it on the screen. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is after is deeper than mere acknowledgement. He wants our hearts to be in alignment with his and our will to align with the Father's will so much so that we joyfully do the Father's will. This is what it looks like to know and be known by Jesus. Something I love about what Jesus says here is, you know, we see what Paul does and it's impressive, but you know what's better than casting out demons in Jesus' name? Knowing and being known by Jesus. We look at Jesus and we see him in his glory and his goodness. And like verse 18, we forsake everything in favor of giving ourselves to him. We say, my life is yours. Use it in whatever way you see fit. I belong to you, period. Like Aaron challenged us last week, it's a kind of head to toe, life and death, inside and outside, faithfulness to Jesus because we just love him so much. And what he's done for us is so unspeakably good, we can't help but want to give ourselves completely to him. So maybe we, we want to be like Paul. We want to have the power of God at work in us, God using us for his ends. Maybe it just looks like getting lost in adoration of Jesus and letting the chips fall where they may and seeing what God does with you. Maybe that's all that this passage is calling us to do. I just want to ask you again. Do you adore the name of Christ or is Christ useful? Why are you here this morning? What brings you to Ridgewood Church this Sunday morning? Is it to get something? You got a list, a handful of things that I really need God to to take care of. And, And maybe if I'm here enough, I can twist his arm and he'll eventually grant those things. Is that why you're here? Or are you here to encounter the risen Jesus through his word and have your eyes elevated for a moment to his glory and his goodness in the gospel? This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, what I would encourage you to do is to consider the claims of the Christian faith, that Jesus died and was resurrected and he is now installed over the nations as the king who reigns supreme over all things, and that he is a gracious king who offers pardon to to those who would come and would lay themselves down before him and say, I am undeserving of this, but Jesus, I belong to you. Take me, lead me, direct me. The picture of the scriptures is that heaven rejoices at a heart posture like that. And so could you pray this morning? Jesus, open my eyes to help me see what this guy's going on and on about from stage. Maybe you're here this morning and kind of like Aaron described about himself last week. You're someone who's close to Christianity. You're, you're Jesus adjacent. And you've been that way for years. And you know about Jesus and you're real familiar with the stories of Jesus but it's in the same kind of category as the demons who see, who know, who recognize, but don't extol. But could it be that you have never encountered Jesus, the God of the gospel, who sends a spirit and opens our eyes to delight in him? Could it be that you have not believed? I've heard it said before that, that being in church makes you a Christian like being in a garage makes you a car, right? Could that be the case for you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian who is, who'd limped in here and you're seeking faithfulness. Man, ask God in the next few moments to just batter your heart and break down any idea of Jesus being useful and ask him to reacquaint you with his goodness and glory so that he would be supreme in every aspect of your life. Would you pray in the next few moments for the Spirit to guide you into the dark and treacherous caverns of your heart and those places that we have not yet yielded ourselves to Jesus and invite him 
invite him to poke and prod, and would you yield to where he leads? The way that we conclude this time is always by taking some time to pray in response to the passage and the things that we've just heard. Could you pray this morning and be obedient to how the Spirit leads you in these next few moments? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to love you more. We want to love you completely. We want a righteousness whose depth exceeds that of the Pharisees because it comes from our heart. And Lord Jesus, would you capture our hearts with your goodness this morning? I pray for my friends who are here this morning who have not yet believed. Would you open their eyes to see the goodness of the gospel? I pray for my friends who are here this morning who have come to church for years and years and years and who just are, are inoculated, who have developed a resistance to all of this. Lord Jesus, would you break that? Would they submit to you? And Lord Jesus, this morning I pray for the brothers and sisters walking faithfully, seeking to follow you. Would you help us to, to see you, your glory all the more, and that we would, would plunder the house for more riches to give up in your name. Jesus, we love you. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us in the next few minutes. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.